the word of God. Let me go ahead and pray and ask God to to bless uh, this time as we come to hear from him. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you've spoken to us and we confess that many times that we don't hear so well. And so as a result of that fact, we need you to open our ears. We need your spirit to work inside us, to, to take the ministry of your spirit to open us, to allow us to hear and to see and to truly grasp who you are, to be reminded of our need for you, to remind of what you've done for us, reminded of what it means to rest in you this coming week. We don't know what's going to come upon us this next week. We don't know what's going to happen, what kinds of needs that we'll be faced with. But regardless of what happens, we know that we need to know you first and foremost, to know who you are and what you have done and to be able to respond to the situations that we will face out of that truth, out of the fact of that truth of who you are. So I pray this morning as we look at your word that you would remind us again, that we would rehearse again this truth of who you are so we will not be taken by surprise. So be able to stand firm, holding on to that which is most sure, the true, the promises that you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we're going to look at John chapter 2, first 11 verses there, the the wedding at Canaan, this account where Jesus turns the the water into wine. In our Monday morning Bible study, we have uh, um, been studying this passage, studying John, the Gospel of John, and a few weeks ago when I had a chance to to lead our study through this, our time, I was kind of walked away with just a, I feel like a deeper, a new understanding of what this passage I'd read for years and years. And I thought this morning is the opportunity to preach that we'd spend some time looking at this and, and seeing and understanding what exactly John is telling us about Jesus as he displays this miracle for us. So John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, I'll go ahead and read this for us. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You might say this is an interesting passage, right, to, to be picking up this morning and looking at. There's a lot of questions I'm not going to answer. <laughs> We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the nature of wine or if it's alcoholic or not or those kinds of things because I don't believe exactly that's the point of the passage Wine is really a non-issue in this point. It's very much a part of how they lived. And yes, it did contain some alcohol. And yes, they had drank probably enough so that the the taste of the wine would shift over the course of time. It's a week-long festival. But that's not the point of this passage. It's not the point of of this miracle that John frames for us. One of the interesting discussions in the in the gospel discussions of John as it relates to the other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is the observation that many have made is that the other Gospels carry and and have Jesus using uh, parables very often in his teaching method, that he would use parables to teach. However, in the book of John, there aren't any parables. We don't have Jesus teaching using these illustrations, these stories in the book, in in John's gospel. It's there, and lots of people have speculated as to why exactly that is the case. But we find what John does, he does something a little bit different. He doesn't use parables, but he uses 
the miracles of Jesus in a particular kind of way. He states them in a particular kind of way. These are real historical events, real things that happen, real breaks in where the creator God comes in and does something in a supernatural way. And what John does is he frames the miracles of Jesus in a certain kind of way. So to put on display something about who Jesus is. As we look at this miracle this morning, it's important for us to recognize that John is framing this miracle to say not just something that the miracle is being accomplished in the miracle, but to be able to, as it were, to see through the miracle to something else. It's something deeper. That's something much more profound that Christ is doing. So there's a miracle here. We want to see the miracle. We want to see what's immediate, what's right in front of us. We want to understand the situation, the nature of the situation. But beyond that, we want to understand there's something more that's taking place. There's something more that Jesus is wanting to demonstrate about who he is, about what he's going to accomplish. And all of these miracles in the book of John, you will note, are called signs. That's particular to John. John uses that terminology as he identifies them as signs. And we know what a sign does, right? A sign points to something else. And so if we get caught up in the miracle, we're going to miss the point. The miracle is a sign. It's to point us to something else. And so when we just look at the sign, we want to see the sign, but only insofar as we ask the question, what's the sign pointing to? And so as we look at that, we're going to look at that. What's the miracle pointing us towards? The miracles of Jesus, as you read through this or any other gospel for that matter, you find are, are not just random acts of power. You don't see Jesus just walking down the street with his magic wand saying, what am I going to do today? But you see that what Jesus does is he makes particular use, purposeful use of his power to heal, to provide, but to more than that, to demonstrate who he is. He wants to say something more than just I can heal and provide. He wants to point to something else that he's going to do, something much deeper and much more profound. And if you picture with me a kind of a, an iceberg, okay? You got this picture in, my mind, in your mind? Got it in my mind anyway. Picture and above the waterline, you see this visible representation of something. And it's real and it's there. And that's the miracle. And that's most visible. But what's attached to that miracle is something much deeper, much more foundational. And as we look at this story, as we look at this account... We're going to look at both what's visible, what's above the waterline, what's the importance of that, as well as what's below the waterline. What's more going on here than meets the eye? What is situational, but then what is transcendent? What is profound? What is Jesus doing by what is seen, by what is not so visible in this? And so that's the two levels we're going to approach this particular miracle, this account with, because I think this is how John, John frames it, because it's how he, he, he frames all of his miracles. We see here there's a wedding that's in, in Cana. It's the first sign that John tells us in verse 11. He concludes this account with this. It's the first sign that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So it's a sign, John says. It's the first sign. It's the, the primary sign. Perhaps it's the foundational sign that points to what Jesus is going to do ultimately. We see that it displays his glory in one way. However, later on, as you read through, his glory is displayed even greater way, more, more significant way, certainly as you get to the cross. But his glory is displayed, and we see that his disciples, those who are there with him, do believe, and they place their faith in him to the degree that this glory was displayed in front of them. So the questions we want to ask is, what's the sign pointing towards of this miracle? What's the glory that's being revealed? What can we understand about that glory from this account? And then what do we understand about the belief of the disciples? What are they believing? What are they seeing? And then what is all this pointing towards? Well, first of all, John, I need to place a, a little bit of context for us. The story follows really the first week in Jesus's ministry, his public ministry, as John uh, frames this for us. In the very first chapter, if you'll turn with me, I want to read really kind of the bookends of the book, in, of, the book of John for us, this gospel. He opens verses 1 through 3, this whole prologue, this section up through verse 18 is his beginning, kind of the introduction to his gospel. But the first three verses will be important for us to understand what's taking place here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning... He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we see that this one called the Word is God, and he was with God. He's distinct from God, and he identified with God. 
and this one called the Word, who's made known as Jesus Christ, as well as the one who made all things. In fact, nothing was made except through him. So he is the creator. And so this one, we're going to learn about this one who becomes flesh and who John is portraying and through his gospel is God, God in the flesh, and yet he is the one as well, the one who created all things. And if you'll turn with me to the very end of the book, or not the very end, but the end of the, the section prior to the epilogue in, verse, in chapter 20, John, unlike unlike the other gospel writers, gives us the clearest sense of his purpose for writing the gospel. And as well, it's important because every event, everything that takes place in the gospel leads to this purpose, has this end in mind, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There are many other signs that he did, but these signs. And so it tells us that what the signs, the miracles that John is going to recount for us have a particular angle that he wants us to see. And he's, he's presenting these in such a way so that it will evoke an illicit belief. So that we believe in Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, the one sent from God, the Son of God, and by believing we had life in his name. And so as we look at this sign, we see that belief is to come out of this, to believe something to be true about who Jesus is. Many other signs that he did, John says, I'm going to choose a few. I'm going to pattern my gospel after these miracles that are there. And we're going to discuss a couple of those in just a moment. But that gives us the context. The word comes in. He is God. He made all things. And John says, I want to present this word to you so that you will believe in who he is Coming back to our immediate setting here, the situation, we see that, that the first week of Jesus' um, ministry is portrayed in the end of chapter 1, and it's concluded really with this um, invitation to the wedding in Cana, and he and his disciples show up. We don't quite understand all that's going on here. We're not told a ton. We know that his mother is there. Obviously, this is some sort of close family friend or or friendship that's there that they're invited to this wedding in Cana. His mother must have some kind of a role in it. She has some sort of responsibility and that she comes to him to ask for some sort of help uh, with the situation that, um, that presents itself with the wine having run out. And so his mother is very much a, a part of, of this account and so in, in this wedding. And so as we look at this, there's a couple things I want to want to look at. Again, the two levels of belief. I want to look at that the first, what's visible in the situation that Jesus steps into. I don't want to minimize that. I think it's important that we see Jesus meeting a need, just like every other miracle that we see, that he cares, that he is concerned about people. He's concerned about their situations. And so he steps into their situation with the use of his power. He meets that need. But he never wants that to be the end. He always wants to do something else. He wants to demonstrate something even in the meeting of that need. And so we're going to look at the situation and we're going to look at what's beyond the situation. As we look at this particular one, we're going to see that glory, Jesus' glory is seen as he provides as God the creator. That Jesus' glory is displayed as we see him providing as only God the creator can. And so you see the situation his, his mom comes to him and says, they have no wine. It's just a statement of fact, right? But the implication is, uh, I need you to do something about it. We don't know exactly what her implication was, except that she would trust that he could do something. No indication necessarily that he was going to do some kind of a miracle. But what's important for us, and we don't quite grasp this because of our understanding of what a, a wedding would be. We go for a couple hours and we leave. We might get some cake or punch or something and we go home. But for them, a wedding was about a week-long celebration. And it was a huge community deal. You have family. You have community gathering around for this entire week of celebration that they recognize exactly what was taking place. And so the fact that wine would have run out was a huge issue in this particular case. The expectation, the cultural expectation, is that there would be provision for the entire period of time. It was a responsibility of the bridegroom, of the wedding party, of the, the family to provide all of this for the guests who would come for this period of time. And so we can't quite understand when she says that the, the wine is gone, there is no more wine, the implication here, the, the incredible impact the, that the bride and the family and the, and the groom would be open to disgrace and disrespect and great embarrassment if this were the case. Indeed, if they were to run out 
of the wine. The wine is reflective of the celebration itself, and the celebration would come to an end at that point. And so it's a huge deal that the wine had run out, and she comes to him. This is really nothing short of failure on the part of the groom. The groom had not done his job. He had not done, he had not done what he was supposed to do in providing what was necessary. We don't know why, but we know that failure is a result of this situation. And so Jesus steps into the situation in a way that none, no one would ever have suspected. Certainly we wouldn't have. As you read the story, you should be surprised by the way that he goes about solving the problem and turning water into wine. I suppose, I'm not sure what other options would have been at his disposal, but certainly option of being God the creator is very helpful in a situation like this. And he displays that in a discreet way, but nonetheless is visible to at least his disciples couple things that's important as we look at this aspect, the situation. First of all, we see his sufficiency makes provision for the bridegroom's failure. His sufficiency provides for the failure of the bridegroom. The embarrassment is averted. The disrespect is averted. Some have even speculated that there's a kind of lawsuit that would be available to the people who attended if they had run out of wine. That's the kind of expectations that were attached to this. And so all of that was averted because Jesus provides for them in the supernatural kind of way. It's by his sufficiency that he provides for their lack. We see also in the text that there's an emphasis on the quantity and the quality. He could have provided in about any way that he chose. But the, the, the text emphasizes the quantity and the quality of what he provides. The quantity is seen in the, in the jars and the size of them and the number of them. It told, we're told that it's 20 to 30 gallons each and there's six of them and you can do the math. It's a lot of gallons of wine eventually that comes out of that. And so there's a large amount. The text even tells us they're filled to the brim. You can picture them, right? They're full. And you even have this idea in your mind that even if they ran out, you put more water in. And guess what? As it relates to this wedding, the provision is endless for this. So the quantity is put on display as well as the quantity. And thus the, the kind of statement between the master of the feast and the bridegroom at the end about, you know, usually people will save the worst wine till later and the, use the best first and all those kinds of things. And he says, but you save the best to last. You know, the point there is that the, quant the quality of the wine is great. It's a superior quality that Jesus has produced Quantity and the quality are both put on display. The way that Jesus provides is an amazing kind of display, not of his power, but of course his desire to do this right, to do it to the degree that it is necessary. And so, of course, if the Son of God does anything, he's going to do it with great quantity and great quality, and we see that's the case. And of course, the question we need to ask is, as the disciples believed in him and his glories manifested, what was it they believed what was it they believed? They saw this, that this guy that turned water into wine in an instantaneous, in a moment in time, what did they believe and what kind of glory was revealed? And we recognize as we look back at the passage in John 1, 3, that everything was made through him, that the glory that's revealed, that's manifested, is the glory of the creator God. That whoever this Jesus Messiah person is, he has the same power that the same God did at the beginning of creation when he spoke everything into existence. The same one who had made the process by which this wine comes to us in a natural way over the course of months and years, he had collapsed that process into a moment of time and had taken out all the intermediate steps and done it in a moment in time he had provided that that's the kind of God that he is. That's who he is. That's the glory that we see. And that's what they came to believe. And if you think about that process of rain falling and roots taking up the moisture and sending it out over the vines and the fruit taking it and the grapes being produced and the, and the grapes being produced in such a way that they could produce wine and the water is turned into something sweet and the sweetness over the course of time in a process that turns it into wine, what Jesus does, it says, I'm going to take that, which is a natural process in my creation, and as creator God in my choosing, I'm going to collapse it into a point in time. And the text even emphasizes, it seems that even as they drew the water out of the containers, as they served it, it was turned into wine at that point in time. And so we see the creator God put on display, his glory is seen in this, in this instant that he takes the elements 
that naturally use this out and he places in his own creative power to produce this and to provide for their need. And his disciples came to believe in Jesus as a creator. I don't know what else he is, but if he can do that, he must be God, the creator. And so they believed him in that way. His glory is put on display for them in that situation. Of course, there's a real need there. Jesus met it by his power. We find ourselves in similar situations, right? We find ourselves in situations day after day, as weeks go by, resources run out. We have material need, we have financial need, we have physical needs that meet us. And each one of us are in the same situation, the same position to look to him to provide for us. Some of us would have stories of ways that he's provided that almost seem miraculous. Other of us would seem would say and identify stories that he has used, very natural means through which he has provided for us, but nonetheless, his glory is displayed in and through our lives as we see him provide for us day in and day out throughout the course of our lives, that we look to him in the midst of our failure and our insufficiency. We look to him to be sufficient to provide for our needs, physically, materially, financially, and it's important that we do so. He's given us some means to meet those things, but only so many. At the end of the day, we realize we can only do so much to meet those needs. At the end of the day, we look to him and recognize only he can provide what we can't. In his supernatural, sustaining kind of way, we look to him as the provider and the creator. And so in this account, we see Jesus manifesting his glory as the creator as he provides for them. But there's more in the story. There's more in this account than we want to look at. Remember the, the iceberg Right? We've just seen the visible. Now we're going to go below the waterline. Because as John displays this miracle, there's more that he wants us to see about Jesus and who he is and what he wants to accomplish. The miracle manifests the glory of him as creator and providing the wine. And, but he wants to point to something else that he, he's going to do. The provision of wine meets an immediate need, but the miracle is a sign. Remember that? It's a foreshadowing. It's pointing to something that he's going to do to meet the deepest needs of man, not just the superficial needs that are real, but the deepest needs of man, of humanity. The signs I'd mentioned before that John presents them and the miracles of Jesus are not random displays of power, but John places them in a particular kind of order so he puts on display who Jesus is and oftentimes teaching is set in connection with the miracle. So we understand the miracle that goes on and we're not gonna walk through them all and there's different ones who have identified and counted them and they are signs, and there's several signs that John presents for us, all leading to the cross. I'm going to point out just a couple of them to help us understand the point of this particular miracle. In chapter 6, John chapter 6, we have the, the feeding of the 5,000. And in that particular case, you have 5,000 men and all their families fed, just a few loaf and a couple of fish, that he does that. And the, and the, the miracle echoes... God's provision for Israel in the wilderness back in Exodus. And you see that God provided them for the 40 years. And this one occasion, Jesus provides for them this bread and fish, and, and he meets their needs. Of course, what do they want? They want Jesus to provide for their material needs permanently. So they're going to take him, and they want to make him king by force. But he won't have anything to do with that. In fact, Jesus wants to turn the whole miracle up on its head and say, I've given you real food and you need real food, but you need something more than just real food. You need spiritual food. And in that setting, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, that I am the one that will feed you permanently. Then you can jump on to John chapter 9. And you see that there's a man born blind. And in that situation, this man who's born blind, Jesus heals him. And it's an acted out kind of parable there of what sight looks like. And you have the Pharisees who are blind. And you have the blind man who can see physically now and spiritually at the same time. And in that same context, you see Jesus teaching. And he says, I am the light of the world. And he says, this is what it means to see. I am the one that brings sight. And you can jump over two more chapters and you see the raising of Lazarus. After four days of being dead, Jesus constructs the situation such that Lazarus is dead, is really dead. Four days dead and he shows up and he raises him to life. And he demonstrates, yes, I can do physical resurrection, but the physical resurrection isn't about what all I'm about. What I'm really about is spiritual resurrection. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That even though you die physically and you will die physically, even Lazarus will die physically, what I'm going to bring is a life that death can't affect. 
because I am the resurrection and the life. And you see in each of those miracles, there's something more that Jesus is pointing to. The material points to the spiritual need. Material is real, and yet it points to and under, undergirding that is a reality of the spiritual need that each person has. And so as we look at this miracle that Jesus does in John chapter 2, we ask the question, so what's this really pointing towards? What's his creative power pointing towards? We see what he's done, but what's he really displaying here? And we're going to see that what's being put on display is the glory, not just as Jesus, the Son of God, is the creator, but Jesus as the redeemer. Where is that in this text? Where do you say you could read it a thousand times maybe and not see it? As you see it in sequence of John and how he places each of the miracles, we know there's something more that he's doing. There's a couple hints, if you will, as you read through it. First of all, in chapter, in verse 4, you see in his interaction with his mother, he says, My hour has not yet come. As she invites him to do something in the situation, he says, My hour has not yet come. What does he mean by that? The hour, of course, is referring to the hour at which he will die he will be crucified and you can read through the rest of John and you will see a number of times as this hour is pointing to the time at which he himself would be crucified and so we see an interaction with his situation with his hour and what he is there for what he is about but then go on in verse 6 there's information that John gives us that it would be easy just to read right over and just to kind of pass by it but you have to ask the question why is it that John gives us the information that he does and he does it in a purposeful kind of way. It says there were six stone water jars. Okay, that would be sufficient, right? Just six jars. He could move right on. He filled them with water. No, no, no. What are these jars used for? The stone water jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification. They had a specific purpose that they were there. And John wants the reader, he wants the listener to see that these were there and they were there for a particular purpose. Because what is Jesus going to do? He's going to take these, these stone jars, which are representative of an old system, the old covenant, an old way of doing things, of doing things. And now Jesus is going to display something new he's going to do with these jars. The Jewish rites of purification is a practice of cleansing their hands and they would cleanse utensils. And you can read in, in Mark chapter 7 describes that process for us. It seems that that the leaders had kind of added to it what was necessary to be clean. And this isn't hygienic, you know what I mean? This isn't get your antibacterial out. It wasn't for that purpose. It was ceremonial clean so that it could be clean before God in that respect. And so you see that these are for this, this purification process and the water was for that process alone. And Jesus says, I'm going to take this sign. I'm going to take this image which is connected with the old system, the old way of cleansing by which you do your best but can only go so far. An old system that is deficient in its ability to truly bring any cleansing at all. I'm going to do something. I'm going to transform that image. Jesus says, fill the jars with water, and they did. And by doing this, Jesus says, I'm going to transform the use or the function of these jars by transforming the contents of the jars. I'm going to change them from just water, and now I'm going to do something else with them. It's not just for cleansing that you try to do. It's for cleansing that I'm going to do. And we have the imagery even bound up in this picture of the wine and the picture of the provision of God, of the provision, of course, even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper of his provision of his blood for our forgiveness. The old system was insufficient. It was unable to accomplish anything especially as the Jewish leaders of that day had got their hands on it and was served really for their own purposes. But the spiritual picture here is that Jesus is giving uh, that which is going, he's going to transform the system. He's going to fill the old with something brand new. He's going to transform it by changing the contents that are in it. He's going to take what is lacking, he's going to fill it up with something that's new. He's going to fill it up with his sufficiency Instead of a ceremonial, continual, ritual cleaning day after day, trying to be clean, he and his supernatural act of giving his own life will provide forgiveness and cleansing once and for all. In a supernatural way, he's going to transform the old system into something new that could never be accomplished by the old. And he will meet the needs of humanity through the death of his life, through his role and the glory of the Redeemer. And so we see the one need met in this parable and this, this miracle. 
need met on a material basis, he does that, but it points towards something more. It points towards him and his act of redeeming that he is going to accomplish. And the imagery that John gives us, the image that we see that Jesus chooses, he selects to do it this way to display what he's going to do and to point towards. And we read on in John and we see what indeed Jesus did accomplish as creator, but even more so as redeemer. His glory is revealed as creator as he turns the water into wine, but even in a, in a greater way through his glory is revealed through his act as redeeming, laying his life down for us. Two application points. Say, okay, that's interesting. His glory is put on display, creator. His glory is displayed in a greater way as redeemer. They're both here. John wants us to see this and not miss the point. He wants to elicit belief in those who watch to see this is who Jesus really is. And he manifests his glory in this way. A couple things as we ask the question, so what's this tell us about his redeeming work? What do we learn from this sign about his redeeming work, what he's done? A couple things. First, the emphasis on the quantity and the quality of the wine tells us about the provision of the redemption. The emphasis on the quantity and the quality of the wine tells us something about the redemption and the nature of the redemptions he's accomplished for us. Okay, Jesus could have done this any way he wanted. He could have given them just enough. He could have, he could have given them bad wine. They wouldn't have known any different. But the parable, the, the, the miracle rather, that he gives us, this picture he gives us, is that he displays the quantity and the quality in a great way. And it's an argument from lesser to greater. If this same one who's going to provide in such lavish kinds of ways for wine at a wedding, how much greater will he who provides the needs for humanity for redemption for all of humanity? If he does it here like this, what does it tell us about how he's going to do it like this? When he comes to redeem, how much more will he do it even in a greater way? The quantity or the understanding or the quality there, even in a more significant way. And it's helpful as we look at the picture, we go, oh yeah. And even as we read that responsive reading of Romans chapter 8, we go, oh yeah. I don't have to bring any wine to this party. I don't have to bring anything because I can't bring anything. He has already provided everything that I need. There's nothing I can bring and it's over in abundance and it's of a quality that I couldn't even touch with his life and with his death and his resurrection and so we see the quantity and the quantity points towards the nature of the redemption that he's offered to each one of us but secondly there's a significant difference between the sign and the miracle and, and what the sign points to there's a difference between the sign itself which reflects his power his creative power to fill in what was lacking right to provide what was missing, he does that by giving the wine. And he uses his creative power to do that. C.S. Lewis calls this a miracle of the old creation. Miracle of the old creation, what's that mean? It means that he uses his power as creator, right? He says, I'm going to restore this. I'm going I'm to make wine where there is no wine. I'm going to fill in with something that's lacking. I'm going to do that. When someone is lacking food, I'm going to make some. When someone is blind, I'm going to restore that. Lazarus is dead, I'm going to raise him to life. And so it's a miracle of the old creation. He uses his creative power to bring that about. We see that in that. The problem is, with each one of those, it's going to run out. When the wine was over, or when the wedding was over, the wine runs out. When Lazarus is raised, guess what? He died. He was raised, but he didn't continue living. He eventually died. And the point is, the best that the old creation work can do is restore a system that is failing, a system that's running down, a system that is subject to a fallen world. So that even as Jesus says, I'm going to give you food, I'm going to give you wine, I'm going to restore your life, but that's, that's provisional, it's temporary. And that's all that their creative work can do. But what I'm going to do in my redemptive work is something completely new. The work I'm going to do in my redemptive work is about the new creation. And C.S. Lewis uses that language to refer to a reversal that's taking place in his redemptive work. Whereas the old is bringing a system and kind of restoring it to a certain order, but it can only go so far. But his redemptive work is taking and making something completely new. The reality here we see is pointing to that. Everything is running down. Everything in our lives we get and the newness is gone, right? You ever get something brand new? And only to find, oh, yeah, it's going to be old really soon, <laughs> you know. 
and you realize, no, this is fading, it is running down. But the newness of the reality that Jesus brings is that he points to something he's gonna do of a different kind. The reality that he points to his redemptive work is not just addressing a deficiency, but he's addressing the deficiency in such a way that the provision brings about a reversal in the order, the reversal of the fallen order. Everything is being turned upside down. Everything is being made new. We're not just given life, we're given life eternal. The life that Jesus talks about in John chapter 11 in the setting with Lazarus is the life that he gives is not subject to death. You will die, but it's not subject to death. It is eternal. It can't be taken. It's not subject to the fallen reality. It's true that we will die, our bodies will die, but the life that he brings is a reversal of everything that we've ever known. And so we live with that reality. And the, if the parable or the, the miracle that Jesus does with turning the water into wine, it becomes, it's a picture of the old creation. It's a parable of the new creation. It's a parable of the reversal of the order that he is going to accomplish. One of the most powerful pictures that I know in, in my own experience of a reversal is the, the story of the lion witch in the wardrobe. I love the imagery as you, as you read the story, and I have it in my mind because my daughters were just in this play and, and just did it and just on a little stage, and there they are, and the kid's kind of acting out, and you got a Aslan and kind of this furry mane and kind of walking around, and I watched the story, and tears came to my eyes. <laughs> the story of that, if you haven't read it or you don't know it, it's a picture of a reversal that takes place in Narnia. It's a story that says the transformation, a reversal from winter to spring to the point at which Christmas comes and gifts are given. A story in which Aslan shows up and as he does, he reverses everything. And the reversal comes at the moment at which he himself sacrifices himself for Edmund. And in that whole story, C.S. Lewis says, it's in this work, the reversal is taking place, that new life is coming. And it's a picture, it's an analogy for us of the redemptive work of Christ as we look at this parable and we ask the question, what's the sign point to? Points to his, Jesus as creator, but points even beyond that to him as redeemer. What's the glory that's revealed? The glory of the one who spoke everything to existence, but the glory as well, the one who renew all things, restore all things. The one who is reversing the tide of the fallen world that we live. And what are we to believe? Believe Christ is creator, of course, but also to recognize him as the redeemer who saved us, that the quality and quantity of his redemption is seen and pictured in this little account that he's provided everything that we need for us. At the same time to recognize that there's a reversal that's taken place, regardless of what it seems like, the life that he brings has been reversed. It's eternal. And we live in that reality. We live in the truth and a part of the belief element, and as John writes to his readers, as he writes to us, some ask the question, is he writing to bring about belief or to help others to continue in belief? And we answer the question, yes, both. For those of us who don't believe, it's to call us to believe. For those of us who need belief to, sustain, to be sustained, he does the same as well. As we look at this account of Jesus, the one who met the needs physically, but then also points to the way he would meet our needs redemptively. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful at this picture that you give to us. You could step into any of our lives and heal, restore immediately, and sometimes you do and sometimes you don't, but Father, help us to, to see that in your work in our lives, by your action or your inaction, that you're revealing something even more and something greater. Father, forgive us to the way that we look to you as creator, not as redeemer, that we value and see your glory in just your creation work, which is significant, and not your work in, our redemp in redemption of our souls. And that our souls will be thrilled by that reality. And with Paul, we'd recognize that the beauty that we have been giving heaven, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, along with everything else. Father, would you enable us this week for those of us who struggle to continue in our belief to truly hold on to who you are who this Christ is and that he as we hang on to him he would hold on to us and that belief would be instilled and would grow in him as Messiah pray for those who do not believe who are struggling even to believe that you would reveal yourself 
to them. They would find their need to not just be situational, their need to be truly their own souls to be saved and that sin to be forgiven and them to be rescued. Father, we as a congregation acknowledge the many needs that we have and I ask that you would meet each one. Father, it's so good to see Dale this morning here and we pray for him and ask that you would, your presence would continue to be with him as he deals with his cancer. Strengthen him today. Father, we pray for Scott and Emily Lang as well, that you would be with them as they, as they mourn and, and celebrate at the same time the birth and the death of little Joshua. And Father, be with them and give them strength that they would demonstrate your goodness even in the midst of a very difficult circumstance. And Father, enable us this week as we leave this place to be your missionaries, to be your witnesses to the truth of who you are and your work in our lives, to the glory that you revealed to us. Would we believe it and share it with others in the way we live, the way we talk, the things we do, the things we don't do, that you would do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I ask you to stand now uh, for the benediction. Again, the imagery oftentimes that we have in this is that uh, it's overflowing, there's plenty, and you hear this in, in the benediction that we have from Paul from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to him, his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now forevermore. Amen. to come and behold the wondrous cross to explore the depths of grace that came to me at such a cost where your boundless love conquered my boundless sin and mercy's arms were open wide my heart is filled with thousand songs proclaiming the glories of Calvary with every breath Lord how I long to sing of Jesus who died for me Lord take me deeper into the glories of Calvary sinners found Eternal joy in the triumph of your wounds by our Savior's crimson flow, holy wrath has been removed, and your saints below join with your saints above, rejoicing in the risen land. My heart is filled songs, proclaiming the glories of Calvary. With every breath, Lord, how I long to sing of Jesus who died for me. Lord, take me deeper into the glories. My heart is filled with a thousand songs, proclaiming the glories of Calvary. With every breath, Lord, how I long to sing of Jesus who died for me. Lord, take me deeper into the glories of Calvary. You are dismissed. <laughs>